Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is the Sikkim Podcast, presented by your friend in the car business, Alan Samuels Dodge Chrysler Jeep Ram Fiat in Waco, online at alansamuelsdcj.com. The Sikkim Podcast is a production of Baylor Athletics. Now, here are your hosts, Brooke Bednars and the voice of the Bears, John Morris. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Sikkim Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in again this week. Want to make sure you subscribe to the Sikkim Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you consume your podcast. Catch us each week for a new Sikkim Podcast and share on social media. We're glad you're with us. I'm John Morris alongside Brooke Bednars. And, uh, Brooke, we uh, are in for a real treat this week, a little different than our normal Sikkim podcast, but in for a real treat. Yes, we have a guest host, Derek Smith. He usually does the radio for Baylor baseball, and today he has an in-depth interview with head coach Steve Rodriguez, and it's going to be a lot of great stories that we can't share. wait to share with you guys. And Derek has uh, said this for really for a while, that he would love the opportunity to sit down with Coach Rod, just get him to tell stories about his professional career, playing professional baseball and this is the opportunity this is the perfect time this is the time exactly so uh, without further ado here are Derek Smith and Baylor baseball coach Steve Rodriguez hey Baylor fans want to welcome you to a conversation today with head baseball coach Steve Rodriguez as we uh, miss baseball right now thought it would be fun to talk to coach Rod about his pro career. We've talked a lot about the program and the ways it's grown and the ways it was growing heading into this year, but coach Rod has had some great experiences with the Red Sox, the Tigers, other organizations, um, a number of aspects of pro ball. So coach Rod, thanks for joining us. Really excited to talk to you about this today. Well, thanks Derek. I appreciate you guys having me. And uh, <laughs> um, I have time. I have time right sure. now. So, uh, these are, these are always welcome things to, mm-hmm. to have an opportunity to come and talk to you. So hopefully our conversation here uh, can scratch the itch for people uh, a little bit as, uh, as, as we go back and think about your pro career that uh, began in uh, 92. You were drafted in the fifth round in 1992. So even in the 2020, uh, even in the 2020 model of the draft, you would, uh, you would be in there in that, uh, in that fifth round by the Red Sox coming off of a, a national championship at Pepperdine. You had a a great series, two fa- a couple of fantastic years, really three great years at Pepperdine leading into that. And, of course, the Red Sox rewarded that with that fifth-round draft pick. Looking back, um, what was it like for you going from Omaha, Pepperdine, the West Coast, the world you knew, to getting drafted into pro ball? What, what do you remember most about those adjustments? The funny thing that I remember was finding out when I got drafted, first of all, um, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have anything like that. So we knew the draft was happening. And I remember getting to the stadium. Uh, we were in Omaha at the time when the draft was happening. I remember getting to the stadium and I remember hearing, you know, Hey, Derek Wallace got selected in the first round off our team by the Cubs. And 
Dan Melendez by the Dodgers in the second round and Steve Montgomery in the third round by the Cardinals. And, and so and guys were hearing and I had never heard anything. And so uh, I was just like, okay, well, it just didn't happen, but I'm in Omaha. And so, and I was just, you know, I, I had not heard anything. And so uh, we were all sitting there stretching. I think it was before we were going to play Texas and uh, my coach, you know, everybody's like, Oh, what, what'd you hear? What'd you hear? And, and I, I didn't hear anything. And my coach goes, Oh, I, I heard fifth round by the Red Sox. And I was like, that was the first time <laughs> I had heard that. And I was like, Oh, okay, cool. That's great. Mm-hmm. You know? And so uh, ever since then, that's, that, that was kind of my initial, I never talked to the scout that drafted me, you know, and his thing wow. was uh, he, he didn't want to bug me while I was in Omaha, which was, you know, which was nice, but it would have been nice to know <laughs> yeah. at the same time that, that I did get drafted. Uh, but you know, it was, it was fun because the, the guy that drafted me, his name was Joe Stevenson. And he was the one scout that I never talked to. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I talked to every, pretty much every team, uh, going into the draft, just like a lot of our guys do, you know, they do background checks and just personalities and stuff like that. But he was the one guy I never, I never talked to the Red Sox. And so when I was drafted by him, like I, I was pumped and I was like, wait a minute, I don't think I ever spoke to that team. And uh, when he, when we actually had an opportunity after Omaha and after team USA, we had an opportunity to meet and I said, how come And he's just like, Oh no, that's just, that's not my thing. I, I, I just watch kind of everything I see on the field and that should tell me what kind of person you are. And so I was like, okay. And so later on when people asked, Hey, who was your scout? And I said, Joe Stevenson. Uh, I had no idea. I had no idea how powerful that man was in the Red no. Sox organization. And they go, oh, wow, that means you're getting to the big leagues. And I kind of like, what are you talking about? He goes, no, he only gets one or two guys every draft, and every one of his guys gets to the big leagues. Wow. And I was like, wow, what a, an amazing a compliment uh, to me to be drafted by the guy. But it's just really funny that I never had the opportunity to, to kind of really talk to him and get to know the guy. And what's interesting now is that his son is a scout now and had the opportunity to meet him as well. So. Uh, just cool. a really interesting opportunity and, and time for me to get drafted and kind of go into it because just kind of unconventional, you know, just mm-hmm. really not, Hey, you know, we're going to talk, you know, cause we didn't have cell phones. And so they'd have to find out what hotel we were staying at, what room we were in. Uh, but just really an unconventional way of finding out I was drafted by the Red Sox in the fifth round. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you now you talk about all the ways people can stay connected. The draft in any sport is, is big business. There's websites analyzing everyone, you know, what kind of prospect they are. If you could, uh, if you could uh, eavesdrop or take a peek at the notes uh, that Mr. Stevenson had on you, what, kind, what do you think would have been in the scouting report for Steve Rodriguez coming out of college? Oh, man. Um, it, it's, it's pretty simple. And I tell kids this who, when I recruit them, are, are kind of my size and and my type of player, I just say, you, you can't take days off. Um, if you take days off, um, if you play hard originally and you take days off, people will wonder two things. Is, is it fake? Um, is, it, you know, is, it, is it just really convenient for him to play hard on one day and not another day? So they wonder if my attitude and how I played was fake. Um, and then they would wonder, like, you know, do you have the sustainability to be able to do that? for 144 game season in the minor leagues. Like that's another tough thing that people would wonder. And so uh, for me, I, I just kind of told them, I go, this is who I am. This is how I play. I don't change anything. And, and I remember when uh, in 95, uh, when I got to the big leagues with the Red Sox during spring training, I remember I like just doing my thing. I, I didn't really change who I was and how I did it just because I was in big league camp. But I remember Mike Greenwell going, Hey, you need to slow down. Uh, this, it, you're not going to be able to handle this. And I just said, look, 
uh, nickname was Greeny. I said, Greeny, this is, this is just kind of who I am. And he goes, yeah, we'll see. And so mm-hmm. that's the thing is like, they will, they're always looking like, Hey, are you going to, is this just a show or is this just kind of who you are? And once he realized uh, at the end of spring training, he goes, I didn't think you had it in you, but no, this is who you are. Mm-hmm. And I just said, yeah, I, I don't have the ability to kind of play it cool. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and try to be the cool guy while I'm playing. I don't, I don't have that ability. Uh, so I just did one thing really well uh, in regards to just doing everything as hard as I possibly could, because if I tried to look cool doing it, I would make mistakes and I didn't, uh, didn't really ever want that, but some scouting things uh, I could really run. That was the one thing I could really do is I could really run, um, you know, power wise, it was occasional power. It was not great power. Um, I could always make contact uh, a, a pretty decent hitter, but a really good defender. So uh, back in the day when it was like defense and speed, uh, back with, you know, when you had, you know, Raphael Belliard and Tommy Herr and uh, Yvonne DeJesus and, and some uh, Ozzie Smith guys who could really play defense and really run. That's when I was drafted. And that's when uh, it all kind of like, it, it was really uh, a blessing for me to be able to have that. <clears throat> and then guys like Nomar Garcia Parra, who came in and took my spot, uh, started showing power and the ability to hit for power in that spot. And that's when the, the position started to change a little bit. But uh, the scouting report for me was pretty simple. I could run. I could really play defense. Um, and then stick me in the bottom of the order. I could really handle a bat, uh, you know, bunt, hit, run, stuff like that. Um, but occasional power and an average hitter. What, what positions did, they, did the Red Sox have you play, whether in the minors or, uh, or at the big league level? Well, it, it, throughout high school, I played shortstop. And then I got to Pepperdine, and I played second base. Mm-hmm. Um, and I played second base pretty much uh, my, my entire college and team USA career and then my first game in the big leagues I'm at shortstop uh so when I hadn't played there pretty much uh ever um I played there a little bit in spring training I played third short second um any place they need me I I I said yeah I can do that and I went and played there and then I remember John Valentin got hit in the head by a pitch and so my first day was at at shortstop and then um ended up going over there a couple different times and then uh, my first start in the big league was at second base but in the big leagues it was short and second but in the, throughout the minor leagues, I played six different positions. Wow. So what, pretty much everything but catcher, pitcher? And... Actually, that's, that's incorrect. I played ah. uh, first, second, short, left, right. I pitch, and I caught. Yeah. Wow. Very yeah. cool. Actually, Very seven cool. different. I don't know if pitch, uh, position. Yeah, seven, I guess you could say. Yeah. That's impressive. Well, you get drafted by the Red Sox. You know, we hear a lot of stories about minor league baseball life. There, you know, there's movies made about it. People talk about it. What, what, what is life in the minor leagues like as you think, as you think back to it? You know, it's, I'll tell you what, it's interesting just because of the, you have to be resilient to a lot of different things. I mean, we had old buses, air conditioning broke down, bus would break down. Um, even in AAA, we would, uh, we would fly, but we would fly early in the morning, like around, we'd have 6 a.m. flights, and we'd have a layover someplace and then you'd get to uh, the, the city that you're playing in, you know, late morning, you'd have maybe an opportunity to catch like an hour, hour and a half nap. And then you were playing that night. Uh, and so you get to the field and you have to, and then there were some times where there'd be weather issues. Uh, I remember one time we had to get grounded because we were up in the air and we actually had to land in a different city because the weather was so bad. And uh, so you would have to do some different things, but you'd have to show up and play. And, uh, you had to realize like you know, no, nobody was going to make an excuse for you. If you went over four, it wasn't going to say, Hey, didn't get a lot of sleep because there was bad weather that day. Um, but you know, you, you just have to find a way to, to kind of take all those things and, and move them out of your system and, and 
just become a, a really good baseball player on a daily basis, regardless of the, uh, regardless of the circumstances. And that's kind of, kind of where I come up with that, you know, winners adjust because the really good players just found a way. And I, I would watch a lot of players and how they handled themselves that day. Um, and I would kind of just kind of move myself to be uh, around them just because I really liked the, the things that they did and what they did off the field. And, you know, because every vice is available for you in the minor leagues. And if, even if you don't, you know, you're not looking for it, it'll find you. So whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's girls, whatever it is. And so the biggest thing is just to be able to, you know, understand what you're supposed to be doing there and, and uh, capitalize on those opportunities. You know, you talked about the, the, the type of player you were and, you know, you didn't have prototypical size, so you had to go all out. Did that mindset probably help you in the minor leagues and when you're dealing with, you know, grounded planes and bus rides and all that? Was that an asset for you in the minors? I think so, just because, you know, I told that I just didn't know any better. Like, that's just mm -hmm. kind of how I did things. And, and I think it kind of pushes over into kind of everything I do, whether it's being a father or a husband or a coach or or a fundraiser or, or whatever it is. It's just, you, you do things as hard as you can, as best you can. And um, I'm not going to say it's, it's always right each time, but I, I do know that the effort and the energy that goes into it is going to be where it's supposed to be. Here for you, your family and our community. Alan Samuels is open for business. Shop safely in our showroom. Our service and parts departments are open. There's free pickup and delivery for all service work. All safely sanitized when returned. We'll even deliver test drive vehicles to your home or office. Shop and buy totally online at alansamuelsdcj.com. We're ready to help. Always your friend in the car business. Alan Samuels Dodge Chrysler Jeep Ram Fiat. Bentwood Realty is a full-service real estate firm with more than 70 high-achieving agents who desire to make a positive impact in their local communities. Their agents stay actively involved in all buying, selling, and investing real estate transactions to make sure their clients receive the utmost level of service. Established in 2011 by brokers Kim Galvan and Rick Hines, both proud Baylor alumni, call Bentwood Realty today, 254-300-4800. They're at 601 Lake Air Drive in Waco and Bentwood realty.com now back to the sikkim podcast presented by your friend in the car business alan samuels dodge chrysler jeep ram fiat so you made the red Sox out of spring training in 1995 uh, opening day opening day roster was was 95 the first year that you thought you realized hey i have a legit shot to to make the roster was that the first year you were in big league camp the the funny thing derek um once again unconventional uh, very, very similar to what is going on right now. Uh, we had, it was a strike year in 1994, yeah. so we didn't have a postseason. So in September and August, actually in August of 94, uh, I believe major league baseball shut down. And so, um, so I went to Puerto Rico to play in winter ball and they ended up putting me on the 40 man roster when I was down there. So at that point they put me on strike. So I was on strike and I wasn't on strike before, but then I was on strike. Um, I want to say it was December, November, December when they put me on the roster, which I was like, sweet. And now I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and so now I had to be a part of the players union and like the meetings and stuff like that. Like, what did it mean? Uh, they had, you know, satellite meetings where you'd be in Phoenix or LA or whatever it is. And everybody would travel to go kind of find out what, what was going on. And so that was a really good, opportunity for me to, to be able to be in these meetings and understand what everybody was talking about and why they were uh, arguing the things they were arguing. And, uh, and so then all of a sudden it kind of gets cleared up 
Um, you know, they had the replacement players kind of coming in for a while and then uh, spring training happened and I was invited to spring training. And I mean, it was just sheer chaos. It, it just was, everybody was trying to get ready and, and doing things. And, and so they added, I want to say the normal roster was 25, but they, they, they added two players and they added Frankie Rodriguez, who was a pitcher and they added myself uh, as an infielder, just kind of a utility guy. And so they, we were there for, I want to say two weeks. Um, and then after two weeks, they had to trim the roster back down to 25 players. And so uh, myself and Branky Rodriguez were, were, were pushed down. But those are the things that I really remember, just how great those guys treated me and, and, the, and the, the sheer joy that I had just learning and watching a lot of those people. But, yeah, my, uh, my first opportunity in the big leagues to make the team, it, it, you know, because they had a lot of guys in spring training. And I, and I played pretty well in that spring training doing everything they asked me to do and, uh, and just kind of being able to execute some things. And when they pulled me in the office, you have all the coaches in there. And, uh, you know, I think my number was like 64, 67, something like that. Mm -hmm. And they just go, Hey, uh, we got to change your number. And I'm like, well, this is the number they gave me. And they're like, no, you know, talk to so-and-so because you're going to Boston with us in a couple of days. And I was just like, Oh my gosh. You know, it's not like I had a cell phone with me where I could call my parents or something like that. I'm like, mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited, but I can't call anybody right now. Cause I don't know where a payphone is. <laughs> yeah. So, so just a really amazing thing. Uh, Kevin Kennedy was our manager at the time. And Frank White was one of the assistant coaches. And uh, I mean, just, just a really neat group, a uh, group of guys. And I really enjoy playing for them. Mm -hmm. Was spring training 95, was it more intense for you or was it kind of business as usual for the way you'd approached it already, things already? Well, it was intense because, you know, as I'm looking around the infield, you know, you have, you know, John Valentin and Tim Daring, Luis Alice. I mean, you have some guys who, who could really play and who've been up there and established for a while, but I knew that there was a couple other spots and I anticipated it being filled with pitchers, you know, the two extra mm -hmm. spots. But when they said that, you know, they were going to take me up there, I was kind of shocked, but I, I, I wanted them to have to force themselves to say no to me. You know, I didn't want me to play poorly and have a bad attitude and stuff like that to just go, no, we don't want that anywhere near that guy on our team. But I wanted them to have to, Hey, make a decision uh, to not have me on there. But I, I played pretty well and kind of forced their hand and they were forced to, uh, <laughs> forced to deal mm -hmm. with me, I guess. That's great. You know, a lot of guys have a story of when they make the big leagues, well, th this guy helped me be a pro, or this person just really showed me some kindness. Were, is there a player or two who in particular sort of helped you with that adjustment? Um, Mike Greenwell and, and believe it or not, Jose Canseco, they were really, yeah, they were really awesome to me. Um, so interesting enough, um, when I got sent down, Mark Witten was one of our outfielders, pulled a hamstring, and so they called me back up. And so I was in, I want to say Syracuse or Rochester at the time. And I had to fly to Anaheim to go play. And we were only there for like two days. And then we were flying to New York, maybe. Um, I think that was right. And then I, I, I don't have any clothes. I had what I had with me and that was it, you know? And so I, and I told them because, you know, there was like, you know, sport coat was a travel attire and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't have any of that because we were traveling on a bus. So I had to go and, and purchase some clothes just to kind of get me through the weekend and just getting through New York. So we're in New York and Jose can, this is just a funny story. Jose Canseco goes, Hey, uh, you want to go to Portobello with me? And I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking Portobello is a mushroom. So it's obviously an Italian food place. And he goes, and I go, no, I've already had lunch. Don't, you know, I appreciate it though. And he's like, man, it's not a food store. It's a clothing store. Come on. So in my head, I'm like, I'm going to go with this guy and I'm not going to have any idea 
you know, what I'm not going to buy anything. I'm not, not to his, to what he's capable of. Yeah. And so we go to the store and uh, he tells the guy, you know, the Italian gentleman who's at the store, he's like, Hey, give him the rookie treatment. And I'm ahead. I'm like, I'm from Vegas. I don't know what that means, but (laughs) I'm I'm really cautious at the time. Uh, And so they size me up and they do all these things to give me like three different sport coats and all the suit and shirts and uh, a bunch of things. And uh, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, my gosh, I'm going to spend my whole first paycheck on on clothes right Mm -hmm. now. And uh, I ended up paying a hundred dollars for the whole thing because Jose Canseco took care of the rest of it. That's cool. So, and it was—it's actually it, those are just some of the neat things. Like Mike Greenwell and him, uh, they would—I would alternate days when I, I would go to lunch with either one of them, and they would take care of it. And, uh, they would kind of show me like, "Hey, you stay away from this area over here, and make sure you're doing this." And and it was really neat to be able to have those people kind of in your corner, uh, who were veterans, who were all stars, who obviously were were pretty. Uh, pretty big in the game at the time uh being able to be in your corner and and proud to kind of take you around and kind of show you the ropes that's very cool what was it like for you uh opening day 95 hearing your name running out onto the field just walking in onto a big league field and knowing you are on the roster (laughs) I couldn't get to the field fast enough I really Mm -hmm. like that was my thing is I, I I cannot wait it's opening day we were playing the Minnesota Twins at the time and I could not wait uh, to get to the field. And so went to the field. I got there really early, got dressed. And I just remembered I wanted to relish the moment of walking down. There's this long corridor that goes from the Red Sox clubhouse to the dugout. And as you're going down, it's like wood planks or it was wood planks going down. And you can just smell the history. And it was unbelievable. And it wasn't like a bad smell, but it was just, it wasn't really musty, but it was just a really cool baseball woodsy kind of smell mm-hmm. as you're walking through the club, uh, this long corridor and you get to the dugout. And as you're getting into the dugout, um, the door, the opening is getting bigger and the, all you see is the green monster and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you get in there and then you get to see the stadium and, and all the media is on the field and, uh, you know, nobody's in this sta- uh, the stadium yet. So you can see the red seat where Ted Williams hit his last home run and, just some really neat things. I just kind of stood there and just looked at the whole thing and go, I, I can't believe I'm here. This is one of the coolest moments ever. Um, but those things like those opening day things that, uh, you know, having Kirby Puckett find me in the outfield during batting practice and saying, welcome to the club. You know, those are things that I will never forget because those are some of the coolest moments of people kind of going out of their way to, to kind of like welcome me into a, a very small fraternity of uh, people when you consider how long baseball has been been around and there's only about 18,000 people who've ever stepped foot on a uh, major league baseball field mm-hmm. uh it's, it's pretty pretty impactful and pretty powerful what what do maybe those of us who aren't a part of that fraternity maybe not understand or their misconceptions you know you see Jose Canseco he's a larger than life figure even in retirement you know Kirby Puckett a, a hall of famer and a bona fide star I might not have expected him to know that there was a rookie on a rival team, but you just said that he did. What, what, what maybe do those of us who aren't part of that world not quite know about what that fraternity is, is like and the personalities behind it? You know, I think, it, I think a lot of them really took pride in being a Major League Baseball player. You know, when they, when they would step on the field, they would kind of go through the roster and they'd see who they knew and if there were any changes. Uh, like I said, because we didn't have access to the information like we do now. So like sometimes you, you literally got that information that day. And 
you know, and I think a lot of them would go through and I'll go, Oh, he, they go, Oh, that's a new guy. And that's a new guy. And, and so sometimes I don't know if they're just introducing themselves to be great and be awesome people, or are they kind of sizing you up? Like, all right, what kind of person are you? And that type of thing. And um, I, I just think for a lot of them, they, they just enjoy kind of what they do and the people they're being around, uh, they're around so much. Cause when you think about it, you're around these people a lot um, on a daily basis. And so you want to get to know the people you're going to be with and who you're going to be playing against and, and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing opportunity for me to do that. To say my wife and I have a lot to clean is an understatement. So we go to TNG Chemical, where the pros know what cleaning solutions to use and give us detailed instructions on exactly how to use them. We never got that kind of advice from any other stores. And the prices at TNG are great, from general household cleaners to odor control solutions for our pets. We go to TNG Chemical and Supply. That's why. TNG Chemical and Supply. That's why. If you need a trailer, Flat Rock Trailers has got you covered. From light-duty single-axle utility trailers to the big text tandem duels. We also carry a full line of enclosed cargo trailers. Need a motorcycle trailer? We've got them. Need a dump trailer? We've got the largest selection in the state. Oil field trailers? We carry a full line of big text trailers to handle all your needs. Trailer repairs? We repair all makes and models. We'll even rent you a trailer if you need to use one for a day. Flat Rock Trailers, your number one source for all your trailer needs. Find us at flatrocktrailers.com. Relationships, community, home. Now more than ever, these are the things that we're holding fast to. Home should restore us from today and ready us for tomorrow. It's where stories are told and relationships are forged. Within those walls, memories are made, laughter is shared, and family is gathered around the table. For these reasons, we believe in home and that right now there is no better place to be. If you and your family are looking to buy or sell a home, head over to magnoliarealty.com. Magnolia is a proud sponsor of Baylor Athletics whether on the field or off, what was your welcome to the big leagues moment? Good, bad, memorable? Was, was there a moment or, or some aspect of being a big leaguer that made you think, oh, wow, this is different level? <laughs> um, this is actually funny, and it's more of an embarrassing thing. Um, and I told our players this this year because things just happen, and sometimes it's out of your control. But my first big league at bat was against the White Sox, think Kirk McCaskill was pitching um I want to say we were losing bad and it was absolutely freezing in Boston freezing and they and it was like the eighth inning and they said hey you're gonna pinch hit and I'm like oh my gosh I'm trying to get loose you know after been sitting for like four hours and I'm like okay I gotta find a way so all of a sudden adrenaline's kicking you know Mm -hmm. adrenaline is moving so inside I'm warm but my limbs are not and so I go up and I want to say I hit a ground ball to second base and I, I can't feel my legs because it's so cold. And so I'm running to first base and I hit first and I trip and I like somersault over first base. And I'm like, my gosh, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, I like, I can't even run to first base without falling down type of thing. But um, so that was kind of like the first thing that I was like, okay, well that's an interesting uh, way to kind of introduce myself to these guys. I'm going to be the guy that falls down all the time on the, on the field, but, uh, but no, those, uh, that was like my first introduction. And when you see, um, like facing some guys who I, I mean, I collected their baseball cards. I, I, you know, I, you always saw them on TV, some amazing things, seeing how strong they were, seeing how big they were, uh, seeing, watching them do things that I did, but doing it significantly better. Like watching Mark Witten throw was one of the most magnificent things I've ever seen. 
uh, just being able to pick a ball up and throw it 400 feet on a line was, was unbelievable. Um, and watching guys like throw as hard as they did and watching, I remember uh, watching Mark McGuire hit three home runs against Zane Smith um, in Boston. And I remember the scouting report uh, before that game, we would all sit down, we were playing the A's and Conseco was on our team, obviously at the time. And uh, Zane Smith was pitching a lefty and, and so we're sitting there going through the sky report. Hey, where do you want to play this guy? How are we going to pitch this guy? And I remember we got to McGuire and Ken Seiko goes, walk him. Just walk him. Don't let him do any damage. Just put him on base. Let someone else do the damage. And everybody's like, okay, seriously. He's like, no, seriously, just walk him. And, uh, and sure enough, he ends up hitting three home runs. or uh, I think it was three home runs that day. And, and afterwards, he's like, I told you, you just should have walked him. <laughs> and so it was kind of a funny thing. But those were the things when you see guys uh, – that powerful and, and and that control of their body, being able to do the things that many of us don't have the opportunity to see or do uh, is pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you, you faced some pretty good pitchers, some of the best pitchers of the 1990s. In fact, I know your first hit came off of Chuck Finley, who was a, uh, a really good pitcher. You know, he, he was one of those that you'd see as an all-star sometimes. Um, you faced what Kenny Rogers, David Cohn, Troy Percival. Um, <laughs> let's see, Mo Mike Mussina. Can't forget Mike Mussina, Hall yeah. of Fame. Uh, what, what was that like? What's it like facing big league pitching in general and, <laughs> and some of the best? Um, there, there's a couple times. I mean, the interesting thing is Chuck Finley. Uh, funny story is uh, I ended up playing in a golf tournament, an Albert Pujols uh, golf tournament. Uh, he was doing a fundraiser in California and I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to go and uh, Chuck was there. And so I actually had an opportunity to take, get a picture with him. And when you see, and I'll send it to you and I'll show you the picture, but when you see how tall he is, like his waist is like almost up to my chest. I mean, it's humongous. <laughs> He's a humongous man. Uh, but it just, it was, it's really funny because he would pitch from, if I'm facing the pitcher, he would pitch from the left side of the rubber. Okay, which is kind of unconventional because most lefties start on the other side of the rubber. But he started like almost staring right at me and coming right at me. And so I was, I remember getting into the box and going, God, what? he is right there, like on top of you. And, uh, and just being able to, to be able to get a hit. I'm, and luckily I had some speaks. I hit a ball in the six hole and, and was able to beat it out. Uh, but I'll tell you what, like he came in boring in that fastball and on righties and it was, it was pretty impressive. But the one person who I faced that, I mean, Kenny Rogers had a split that was really good. Uh, Mike Mussina had a curveball that was unbelievable. Uh, but the person that I faced was Kevin Brown back when Kevin Brown was like, when he, people were throwing 95, which everybody does now, but back then it was just different. Uh, he, he threw a fastball to me and I just remember stepping out of the box going, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to hit that. You know, <laughs> I really didn't. I was just like, man, I better, I got to shrink this zone really quick and find something I'm going to be able to hit. Um, Luckily, I ended up getting a hit because I just said, I'm not going to focus on anything on the inside part of the plate. I'm going outside part of the plate. And so uh, I just said, okay, I'm going to look for something on this outside. He ended up throwing a slider, thank God. Um, <laughs> and I ended up getting a hit up the middle. Uh, but there was one time I got the two strikes because I kept fouling balls off because he threw like the heaviest ball ever. Mm -hmm. um, and he threw a ball that was just boring in. It was two strikes. I'm like, I got to swing at this. And I swear it could have hit between my hands. I really do. It, it jammed me so bad. I want to say it hit about four inches above my hand, but it jammed me so bad. I didn't even break my bat. And I had this lazy loopy fly ball to Bobby Bonilla, who was playing third and he came in running at it. And I remember 
jogging to first base and then jogging back to the dugout. And uh, I want to say Phil Nevin or Travis or Phil Nevin came over and he was going like this with my bat and he's like, Hey, it's still not vibrating. He jammed me so bad. <laughs> and I go, yeah, trust me. I know my, my thumb is feeling it right now. Uh, but Travis Ryman looked at me and he goes, Hey, trust me, he does it to the best of us. You're going to be all right. Mm-hmm. So, but that was, those are kind of just funny moments. I just remember facing some of those guys going, my gosh, they, they are really good. And they're, they're in control of everything they do up there and uh, the ability to, manipulate and manufacture uh the movement and, and the, the pitch quality that they had was pretty impressive D- does it take very long as a as a hitter you know you mentioned seeing guys that you had baseball cards of or that you know have a reputation of well this guy has the best curve in the game or, or what have you is it easy to kind of put those thoughts out of your head or is that something that you have to get a few at bats in or does spring training do that for you you kind of are able to well, just kind of focus on your job well, um, you, you know what they have and you know what their out pitch is. I think it's just a matter of finding patterns that they're going to use to try to get you out. You know, I think every, every hitter, every good hitter is going to, okay, this guy is going to try to do this to me. And so uh, I got to, what's my counter to that, you know, and, you know, in the big leagues, you're, you might get one pitch that is going to be a mistake and you you have to take advantage of it because they're really good at what they do and how they throw their pitches. So um, you just got to take advantage of it. Uh, those mistakes, cause you're not going to get many of them, but, you know when you walk into uh, into the box that what they're what they have and what they what they're going to try to do to you, but luckily as a rookie at that time I was new, so they were just trying to figure out you know who I was and hey he's five eight, let's see how far he can hit it. So I knew they were going to challenge me with fastballs right away. What is uh, what is life on the road like in in Major League Baseball? I mean, we is did, did Major League hit the nail on the head, or what? To, what what should we know about what it's like to be a big leaguer on on the road, and what what it's like to travel and do all those things? Um, you know what? It, it's it was like I said back in the '90s, kind of probably way different way than now. But you know, it was there are some things that are very true. You know, you you don't you don't you bring your luggage to the field. And the next time you see it is going to be in your hotel room at the next, at the next city. Um, so you don't unpack your things. And most of the time the clubhouse guys pack your stuff for you, uh, all your baseball stuff. And so you literally just put all your stuff in your locker and, and they will pack your locker and they send it to the next city. And when the next city you get there, all the stuff is in your, your uh, visiting locker. So, uh, you know, those things are, are just, are, are, I'll sit in there like, wow, that's, that's really impressive. I didn't really realize that, you know, the food is amazing. Uh, you know, the hotels were a little bit odd just because there's a lot of people at hotels. They all knew what hotels we were staying at. And so there'd be a lot of people kind of loitering around the hotels and waiting for obviously Roger Clemens and Jose Canseco's autographs and, and stuff like that. And I, they always thought I was like a manager or a bat boy or something, which for me was great. No one ever really bugged me. Yeah. Um, but just, I mean, I think it was great just because I had a chance to go visit a lot of different cities and, and some new things. And, and I had some, some veterans who would kind of show me around, uh, which was fun, but um, you know, it, it's, there, there's some validity to the, there's some crazy people out there. And so you have to be careful. And uh, but at the same time, just as long as you're a good person, you're doing the right thing. I think you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- wh- when you think about all the free time baseball players have, you know, we all know baseball players find some, creative ways to do to 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 pass the time that they have whether in the dugout the bullpen or just on the road any stories stand out from teammates or whatever about I don't know just funny moments or things that you still laugh about what do you think about today I went golfing with Jose Canseco um and he would have two batting gloves 
was on when he would golf and watching him try to hit a golf ball and seeing how far he can hit a golf ball is by far one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Witten was a big fisherman, big fisherman. So I didn't, uh, I had never caught in a fish in my life, obviously being from Vegas, I, I didn't really go fishing a ton. So never like, I, like generally had a fishing pole went out. And so my father-in-law, uh, who's a big, big outdoors guy, uh, hunter and a fisherman, uh, sent me a fishing pole. And so it, it arrived and, Mark went and came over, opened it up. He's like, what are we working with here? And so mm-hmm. we went fishing and, and I caught a fish with him. And so that was fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the golfing and fishing and probably now video games, I, I, I think are, are a big thing now, but uh, for the most part, guys, guys stayed pretty active. Uh, you know, if they were rehabbing or something like that from injuries or uh, they would play some video games back then it was like regular PlayStation where you had the discs uh, that you had to put in and you would be able to do some stuff. But um so those are some things that we did, but, but fishing and golfing, I think were the big activities during the season that uh, when people had some spare time, they would go and do that. Relationships, community, home. Now more than ever, these are the things that we're holding fast to. Home should restore us from today and ready us for tomorrow. It's where stories are told and relationships are forged. Within those walls, memories are made, laughter is shared, and family is gathered around the table. For these reasons, we believe in home and that right now there is no better place to be. If you and your family are looking to buy or sell a home, head over to magnoliarealty.com. Magnolia is a proud sponsor of Baylor Athletics. I hate my job, but I don't mind getting up in the morning. I dread each day, but I can't wait to get out of bed. You ask me why, and what I'll say to you is true. Well, you can get breakfast tacos at Rudy's Barbecue. Scrambled eggs and brisket, they ain't fooling around. Salsa wrap, son, they're the best in town. Barbecue for breakfast, yes, it's true. Put a smile on your morning at Rudy's Barbecue. You're listening to the Sikkim Podcast, a production of Baylor Athletics. Presented by your friend in the car business, Alan Samuels, Dodge Chrysler Jeep Ram Fiat. You mentioned enjoying getting to travel to some cool cities, playing some cool ballparks. Your, your home ballparks in 95 were Fenway and Tiger Stadium, two classic ballparks I want to ask you about. But on the road, were there any stadiums that were just your favorite, the kind of places that you uh, maybe enjoyed the most for whatever reason? Uh, Yankee Stadium was awesome. Uh, originally, I mean, Yankee Stadium was amazing to go to. And being a Red Sox going into Yankee Stadium, I actually had a chance to go there twice, once with the Red Sox, once with the Tigers. Uh, but being able to go there was was pretty remarkable. Um, being able to see the hatred that Yankee fans had for Red Sox people were, were, was pretty impressive. And especially during the strike year when tensions were still already a little bit high from, from all of that. Uh, but for me, those were, those were the two cities. I'm trying to think. I remember I played in Anaheim Stadium and the Coliseum in Oakland. Uh, you know, Anaheim was great just because I had a lot of family members who, who were able to go and attend. So that was really fun. But, uh, but those, I would say Yankee Stadium and Anaheim were probably the, the best ones I went to. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what did you like? Uh, you know, you really painted a vivid picture of walking into Fenway and, and, and seeing the green monster. You know, Tiger Stadium, they don't play there anymore, but a classic, a classic ballpark. Uh, what was it like to, uh, to have that be your, uh, your home office, those ballparks? <laughs> um, it was awesome because I was the only one who could stand up in Tiger Stadium in the dugout and not hit his head 
on the dugout. Like that was the yeah. funniest thing is everybody else had a kind of walk hunched over and I would just keep walking and they were like, man, this is built for you. Cause obviously mm-hmm. back when it was built, players were a lot shorter, obviously. So, uh, so it didn't really have that big of an effect on me, but, but watching guys like Cecil Fielder and stuff like that, trying to walk around that dugout was, 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 uh, pretty comical. Um, but yeah, so those, those are pretty, uh, and just the distance from the field that the dugouts were, you know what I mean? Like, like right now, sometimes they're kind of on top of the field, but like the Fenway dugout is way down the line uh, and, and not really that deep, but way down the line. So it's almost right by first base or it is by first base, which is, is a little untraditional, um, you know, and the same thing with Tiger Stadium. There's so much foul ground uh, that this made it really interesting and pretty unique. Mm-hmm. When... One thing, Derek, that was interesting when I first got to Tiger Stadium, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. Al Kaline came down and started talking to me. I mean, he just passed away. And, uh, but having him come and just talk and, hey, congratulations, we're going to get you to do this, we're going to do that. And, I mean, it was awesome being able to talk to him. And then there was a moment where I was just like, wow, that's impressive. Uh, Kurt Gibson uh, showed up to the stadium, and we were all changing and uh, getting ready for the game. And, and he walked in with jeans, cowboy boots, and black leather vest. And that was it. <laughs> and I was like, you can pull that off. Cause he was still just jacked. And I was like, that might be one of the most impressive things I've seen. And I was like, yep, he pulls that off. And man, the attitude he came in with was just awesome. And it ignited the room and man, people just went swarming to him. You could just see just how much people love that guy. So that was pretty cool. So is that, is that something we'd ever see you try to pull off walking into Baylor ballpark? And he, <laughs> as soon as says, I can get arms and a physique yeah. like him, I will gladly do that there. I'm going to work Fair on it. Well, I got time right now. So you know what? That's my goal. That's true. To leather vest it. That's, that's my goal. <laughs> Make some good, uh, some good Twitter <laughs> fodder one of these days. So. Uh, why not? Why not? What was it like for you making a midseason move from one organization to another, from the organization that drafted you, but realizing, you know, you got to get acclimated really quickly to Detroit? Um, it was interesting because um, I was up and down with the Red Sox a couple different times. And then just a really funny story, but my, I was in AAA and it was like the last part of the year. Um, I want to say it was like the end of August and I was facing Paul Wilson, uh, who was pitching for the Mets AAA organization and put, and we were in Pawtucket. So we were at home and it was the first time ever I had struck out three times in a game. Paul Wilson just owned me uh, that day. And so, you know, I'm just, I'm a mess. I'm frustrated. I'm, 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 I'm really upset. So I strike out for the third time, toss my bat, toss my helmet, go out to my position because it's the third out. And then all of a sudden my manager, buddy Bailey's like, Hey, you got to come off the field. And in my head, I'm like, I strike out three times and you're taking me out of the game. I'm like, I've never seen you do that before. And, uh, and I was like, what's going on? So I come off the field and he goes, Hey, the Red Sox just took you off the roster. So you can't play anymore right now. And so there was only two games left. So you have 72 hours to clear waiver. So at that point, my season's over, my season's pretty much done. Uh, and so I was like, um, okay, I, I guess I'm, I'm done then. And so I was able to pack up and, and Kim and I were able to drive home. And so as soon as I got home, uh, we, we got to Kim's parents' house. And, and I remember they were like, hey, somebody from the Detroit Tigers called you? or you're, uh, And so I ended up calling them back and they said, hey, we picked you up on waivers. We got a flight for you tomorrow to go to Toronto uh, because we're, we're going to be playing the Blue Jays. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So I had to get my mindset kind of wrapped around 
the fact that, you know, I had already had like four days, five days off and now I got to go and, uh, and go jump on a plane and, and go up and, and face Pat Hankin up there with the, wow. with the Blue Jays. But, um, but it was, it was just, a, it was a different thing because I didn't realize like how quickly things turned, you know, you, you really enjoy your organization. You like the people you're with. And then all of a sudden they're like, we don't care. Uh, we got to make some moves and we're going to do some different things. And so uh, that's, that's what they did. And then at that point I realized, you know, after playing with a couple other organizations after that, you realize that it, it it's just, it's a business and don't get too comfortable uh, really liking a lot of guys or a lot of different places. But I still, mm-hmm. I still am friends with about a handful of guys that uh, had a great relationship with throughout my minor leagues, but you realize real quick that it's a business and they're going to do what's best for the organization. Mm-hmm. You know, with Detroit, you had a, uh, a pretty cool moment with a, an all-time great. It was with Detroit, right, that you played a, a game within a game with <laughs> Cal Ripken Jr.? Yes, uh, it was with Detroit. Um, it was the end of the season. It was the last weekend of the year um, in 95, and it was Sparky Anderson's last, uh, last managerial position. Uh, he, was, he told all of us he was going to be retiring. It was going to be his last year. It was very emotional. Uh, so, and that was the same, the same year that, uh, Alan Trammell and, uh, Lou Whitaker announced that that was going to be their final, I was like their farewell tour, uh, along that same route as well. And so it was just a really kind of cool, emotional, uh, be having Travis, uh, or, uh, Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker being together for 20 years, which is just unheard of. Uh, and then, you know, obviously being, being able to be coached by Sparky Anderson was just an amazing thing. Uh, but in that, in that last weekend, you know, I got, uh, I was kind of going in for Lou Whitaker, like they would start the game, they would get in that bath, they'd get their standing O from all the stadium, uh, stadiums we played in, and then they would put myself and Chris Gomez in to, to, to play different positions for those two guys, uh, just depending on when they came up in the lineup. And, uh, and so I had the opportunity to go and play shortstop that day, because uh, I think Chris was playing second base that day. So I went in to play short. And uh, I remember seeing a big tic-tac-toe sign uh, in the six hole. And I remember looking over like, what, what's this? And I remember uh, Cal Ripon going, come on, come on, let's go. And so uh, we ended up going to a Cats game, but it was just, uh, it, it was just a funny, uh, it was just a funny opportunity because I'm mm-hmm. sitting there, you know, playing against the iron horse guy who just breaks the record. Yeah. He just broke the record that year uh, for the most consecutive games. And I'm sitting here playing tic-tac-toe with him. <laughs> in front of 55,000 people at Camden Yards. That's pretty cool. Is there any pressure in playing tic-tac-toe in front of everybody with, uh, with Cal Ripken? <laughs> well, I wasn't so concerned about that as opposed to like, man, I got to figure out what I'm doing over here, you know, and just, it was just really funny because, you know, like I would sit there and I'd go, okay, where are we with this game? And, and you kind of look at it and you put your X or your O and then, you know, you get, you try to get yourself situated. But what's funny is the grounds guys didn't like mess it up. They kind of kept the game going where it was. And it was just kind of funny. funny. It was just, it was just a neat thing that, uh, you know, pretty proud to say I got a chance to do that. Mm-hmm. You saw him again a couple of years ago, a couple of off seasons ago, right? Did y'all reminisce yeah. about that? <laughs> you know what? We talked about a couple different things and, and he just kind of laughed because, you know, being the player that he is, I heard some ridiculous stories about things that he used to do in the clubhouse and just the, how he would just kind of like roughhouse a lot and just wrestle mm-hmm. guys and do all sorts of different things. And, uh, and so he, you know, we, we had a chance to talk about a lot of those things when he came here to, to meet with Chip and, and uh, do the Magnolia thing. And, and so we had uh, Chip called me and said, Hey, why don't you come on out? So just a really kind of a cool opportunity uh, to be able to kind of reminisce about some things that, that I heard about him. And he's like, yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> one funny story is I heard that 
for a while he would used to play play a game. He played with a watch on, and sometimes it would be like a uh, just a regular you know Casio digital watch, and sometimes mm-hmm. it would be a different watch. Uh, but he would put a, a wristband over it. And so, and in my head, I was like, Hey, was that true that you, he's like, Oh yeah. Because during spring training, they didn't have clocks everywhere. And you didn't know when your group was supposed to go and hit or move the defense or whatever it was when you're rotating. And so he's like, I got so sick of like being late to go hit. I would always have my watch on during BP. So I knew, Hey, we got to get going so we don't miss our reps. And so he got like that. And I started having a really good, I started playing during some, during the inter squads with it. And then, He'd play in the spring training games with it. And then he goes, man, I'm actually hitting really well. So it just became a thing that Why he would not? just play with a watch on. And so when I heard that, I was just like, that is just unbelievable that a, a guy like him was playing with a watch on for most of his, for most of the time is pretty fun. It worked for him for sure. Did yes. you have any superstitions? Um, you know, I think everybody has, you know, certain things like when things are going really well, you want to try to replicate it as best you can. Um, I know Wade Boggs was one of the biggest superstitious, most superstitious guys uh, I've ever seen. Um, if he went and had lunch with you, uh, you know, rumor is that if he didn't have a good game, you would never eat with him again. Uh, hmm. But if you, if he had a good game, you know, you were eating with him until that, that, yeah. that streak stops type of thing. Uh, but for me, it was just, it, I, I didn't have a ton of them. Um, it was just more just things that I felt good with, whether my pants were up or down you know, long sleeve, short sleeve, you know, nothing, nothing over extravagant. You mentioned Sparky Anderson. I know it's kind of final months of his career, but what aspects of him as a manager, as a leader stand out to you or just as the kind of person that he was? <laughs> Another funny story for you. Yeah. So uh, we're playing in Boston and I'm trying to think of the left-handed pitcher who was pitching, but we had hit and run on and the pitcher clearly crossed his foot over the rubber. So I took off. I get picked off. I come in the dugout and Sparky Anderson smacks me as hard as it was pretty hard. I won't say as hard as he can, but he smacked me pretty hard in the face. And I sit there and in my head, I'm like, yeah, you got my attention right now. Don't trust me. You got my attention. And he grabbed me by the shirt and he said, you never get picked off on a hit and run. He's like, you're too good of a player. That should never happen. And in my head, I was like, wow. Okay. Sparky Anderson just smacked me in the head. Uh, but second, I was like, that was a pretty powerful moment that, uh, that he said, he's like, you know, players like you, that should never happen. And I kind of told him what I saw um, in regards to why I went. And he's like, I don't care because that umpire didn't call the balk. So that means he's correct and you're not. And I was like, okay, that's also another great tip is that if it's not called, it didn't happen. <laughs> that's good. Do you, um, you know, on a lot of lessons along the way, and I know you've talked about, you know, at 25, 26 years old, you know, maybe just how hard it is to be ready for the big leagues. Looking back, you know, from this vantage point, if you could tell your 25 or 26 year old self something that would help you be, have more success right off the bat or change any aspect that you want to change, what, what might that be? I, I tell people this all the time. I think I got to the big leagues too quick. I know that sounds really weird. Um, but I mean, I had like maybe a couple weeks, my first year in 92, uh, I had a full season in 93, uh, half of a double a season in 94 and half of a triple a season in 94. And then I was in the big leagues the next year. So, I mean, I, I rushed through the minor leagues. I tell people all the time, like I got there too fast just because I just did things as hard as I could. I played as hard as I could. I think that what got me there. But once I got to that level, I really had to learn the game or know the game. And in just not regards to like understanding where to throw the ball or what to expect and anticipation of different plays, but just, 
how pitchers would set you up, the different nuances and the intricacies that go along with playing the game the way it's supposed to be played and, and how they learn different things. And that's the stuff that I didn't know. And so those are the things that I think I needed to learn that I wasn't able to do once I got up there. And so when I got set back down, I was able to learn a lot of those things for, for the next couple of years. And then when I was with the Expos, man, I was having a really good year and I was hitting the ball well. And I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get this. And I never got that other opportunity. And that's why I tell them, I go, sometimes, you know, you want that extra opportunity because, hey, like I'm starting to figure this out. Now's my a chance to get it. And I never got it. And that, so that was, that was kind of frustrating um, in those things. And so what I would tell, like, you know, that's why I try to uh, preach to our guys right now, learn this game and learn different things because, you know, your talent will get you to a certain level. But, you know, there's going to be some time when you're going to need to know some things that are really going to help your talent. And those are the things that I think I wish I would have been able to take along the way because I was learn I knew the game really well but those were the intricacies that I think could have really helped me if I would have had a better opportunity because I remember uh asking guys like uh Wes Chamberlain and Willie McGee and guys who I play in the minor leagues with I'm like hey teach me something what do I need to learn and Willie McGee the famous I mean for a guy who could absolutely fly I mean he could really run um and I just he just goes just remember you can't strike out if you don't get two strikes on it and in my head I was like okay that's that's your bit of information for me huh but what's funny is so true for a guy like him who could really run you know he would just say you're you're doing your team and yourself a disservice if you strike out because if I hit the ball on the ground that guy's got to pick it up and then he's got to throw me out and a lot of things have to happen and and with my speed I like that chance but if I strike out you know none of that has to happen. So it was just interesting because that was kind of his mindset was never get the two strikes. I was like, okay, good tip. It's good. Probably a little different for everyone up there. Yes. You had some similarities with that speed for sure. When you look back now, what, what emotions do you feel when you, when you think of your, your time in the big leagues and the fact that you got to put on the uniform? Oh, I think of just some of the amazing people that I met um, and that truthfully that I still in, stay in contact with. Um, because those are the things like just being part of a group like that and saying that I did it, um, obviously wishing I could do it longer. Uh, but knowing that I had an opportunity to go up there and play against the best and be one of the best, um, in a, in a system that did not have a lot of, like a lot of people in it, um, is pretty powerful. And it's, uh, it's pretty humbling in, in a lot of different regards because you see, you know, how, how good these players are. And then I can say that I was actually one of them is it's a pretty humbling moment. It really is. Mm -hmm. Who are some of those guys you stay in contact with? Well, one that's in the, uh, <laughs> he, he's getting a lot of attention right now is Tony Clark. <laughs> uh, he, he and I have been in uh, communication for, uh, for a while. And uh, you know, he, with the players association, they're trying to figure out the whole collective bargaining thing right now and how to get the players back. But, you know, Phil Nevin and I, we, we were, and luckily his son is actually on our team right now, but uh, we were in communication well before it just because, you know, he was actually coaching some of my former players from Pepperdine. So he was actually a manager in Toledo when one of my former players was actually playing uh, for the Mud Hens. And so I went and saw him and had an opportunity to catch up and then I ended up seeing him when his other son was committed to UCLA, uh, saw him while he was watching his son play. And so we, we've had an opportunity to kind of catch up and and what's neat is being able to see like Scott Hatterberg, who was famous for the Moneyball book, he had a mm -hmm. whole chapter on Scott Hatterberg. He and I were teammates throughout the Red Sox. And then he went to the Oakland A's. And, and now he, I think he's working for the Mariners or the A's right now in a special assistant role. 
but those are the like, and so whenever they come out and they go, I, I see the guys that I played with, uh, they're scouting or, or they're in the front office now and, you know, or they're managing in the big leagues, you know, stuff like that. Like a lot of coaches right now that I actually played with, or that's really fun. Just being able to say, Hey, what are you guys hearing? What are you guys doing? What kind of analytics, you know, so I'm trying to learn still a lot from what they're doing and how they're doing it. But at the same time, we can kind of throw back to right when we were still playing and, and kind of, kind of mess around with each other pretty good too. You know, and you had an interesting experience as a big leaguer and that you made it to the highest level of the game, but it wasn't just a, uh, a path that was already blazed for you. You had to, you had to work your way to it and it wasn't like it just everything about it came easily. How does that shape the way you're able to interact with players now as a coach and maybe probably understand the guys who have a lot of talent and also the guys who are having to really scrap? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. You, you have a certain amount of ability, but my job is to find what you don't have and help you create it. Um, so if, if you have guys with amazing ability, but maybe the work ethic is, is a little bit less just because their talent has gotten them so far, my job is to find that work ethic, you know, and for guys who have amazing work ethic, my, my job is to help find that ability, you know, that that's hopefully we're, we're going to mesh the two at some point. Um, and that's, that's my, that's my thing is just being able to take those guys and, and hopefully try to coach them in a way that, you know, may not be always nice, may not always be friendly, but sometimes, uh, you know, you, you need to get kind of get a little kick in the butt to kind of understand that there's some seriousness with this. And, and if you're not willing to get it, I'm going to really help you get it. Uh, because I know that for guys who don't have an amazing amount of talent or they're missing part of it, um, it can be a really humbling moment uh, when, when things don't go your way or when you get released or, or when you don't get drafted or you're expecting to get drafted in a certain spot and it gets, you know, it doesn't go that way. So, I mean, you, you have control of a lot of those things and, and to be able to manage and control those emotions and those feelings and that work ethic is such a powerful thing in so many different parts of your life that once you learn it, it should never disappear from you. And so that's my job is because so for some kids, they're so talented, they come here and now they're playing with other talented people and they don't know how to react. Well, that's my job. My job as a coach, and that's what, that's what coaching is, is your job is to get the best out of those players. And sometimes it's not always how do you get them to throw strikes or throw hard, but their mentality of when they come back in the dugout, you know, or, hey, you got to make sure you're doing this, or how do you lead other guys to, to help them be as good as you are, you know, stuff like that. And so, you know, coaching is not really just the X's and O's as opposed to it is like me trying to find a way to make you the best player you can be. Well, Coach, really uh, appreciate the, this time. And we've, we've talked about an hour, which, uh, which is, is great. I could talk a lot more. But um, as we kind of wind down, I want to ask you, you know, having played the game at the highest level, and I don't know how much you're able to watch Major League Baseball all the time because your job keeps you pretty busy. But, but when you do, or if you look at the way the game has, has changed, the way it stayed the same, the way it kind of continues to evolve, what stands out to you now from, you know, 25 years after your time in the bigs about where baseball is now and maybe what you appreciate all the more about baseball in 2020 or hopefully 2020 um, when, um, when you think about your own experiences? You know, I think there's a, there's a lot of differences, Derek. I'm not going to lie to you. There's a lot of differences uh, from the pitching standpoint. Um, you know, when I played, pitchers were, they were conditioned to go as long as they can in the game and then you'd have the bullpen to be able to come and pick them up. And now I think a lot of pitchers, their goal is to get to five innings, go as hard as you can for five innings. And then you have, you know, 15 guys, 10 guys in the bullpen who are going to throw 95 to hundred miles an hour, who are going to pick you up for the, the, the last four. Um, you know, you have hitters who can hit the ball, you know, it's 
Like striking out wasn't a big issue for them. Where back in the day, striking out was a big issue. Uh, you know, you, you just did everything you could not to strike out. Well, now, you know, they, a lot of people don't care. They'd rather have you hit a home run and strike out three times than, than you know, go two for four with a, a single and a double. You know, so it's just different in those regards. And, you know, you see all these big shifts now because guys have a lot of tendencies that they're, they're you know, for their spray charts. And now, you know, back when I played, like, guys would make that adjustment. They're like, hey, they're doing me – they're doing this to me and they're pitching me this way, so I need to be able to make an adjustment and, and change some things. And so those are some of the things that are just different. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just changed the game um, a little bit. Um, you know, from – you know, nobody bunts anymore, which is a really interesting thing. Uh, stealing the guys who steal. I mean, we had Ricky Henderson and Kenny, uh, uh, Lenny Dykstra stealing a hundred plus bags a year. You know, you don't, no one's even close to that now, you know, so there's, there's definitely some things that have absolutely changed, but um, I think the game is a lot of fun for a lot of fans. Um, shoot. I went down to that Astros Dodgers game when it was just extra innings and home yeah. run after home run and, and just watching a lot of that. And just an amazing, like it was, just, it was a show. It was like going to a Broadway mm -hmm. show. Uh, just watching the sheer entertainment value of it was absolutely awesome. And, and those are the things I think are, have what grown the game. Uh, you know, like when uh, Jose Canseco and, and McGuire, not Jose Canseco, but when McGuire and Sosa were going for the home run title, you know, back when it was right after the strike year happened and baseball was a plummeting in regards to its popularity, those two brought it back to life. And, you know, there's something to be said about home runs. You know, home runs bring a lot of excitement and a lot of joy. Um, and, and a lot of fanfare that go along with it. That's why there's a home run derby. You don't see a singles derby anywhere. There's a home run derby for a reason because people love watching it. People love seeing the, that kind of action and uh, just the sheer raw strength that some, some human beings have is, is really impressive. I know that, you know, back uh, when they were talking about steroids in the Olympics, um, I always tell people I would love to see sprinters. Like, and I want to see how fast the human body can actually go. So, yeah, let them do it. You know, I'm not saying it's, it should be right or it's wrong, but uh, I'm just saying, like, it would be fun to watch how fast someone can throw a ball, how far someone can hit a mm -hmm. ball, just a human body, like what it can actually do. Like, does, like, does Hussein Bolt like, run, you know, and does he explode at the end? Who knows? Like, mm -hmm. what, what really happens when a guy is running that fast? And I just think it's really amazing when you watch what some people are able to do with their body. And it's just uh, the, the results that they get from it, just the hours upon hours, like watching Steph Curry, uh, do his thing, you know, like being able to throw a ball up from anywhere on the court. And the chances of it going in are pretty good. Like that's an amazing statistic that he has uh, conditioned his body and his technique so much that he's able to do that. That for me is what's fascinating. Well, finally, Coach, I'll ask you to kind of close it out here. When you're watching a major league game or when you're, you're coaching Baylor, is there any aspect of your time, in, in, I'd say in pro ball, but really at any level that still feels vivid, whether it's standing in the box or having to think through a pitch sequence as a hitter. What, what aspect to you still can feel the most real uh, even now? I think watching guys' movements, watching them pre-pitch, watching some of their actions in the box, you know, there's certain things that I always still I, – I can close my eyes and remember it. Just the smell of the dirt, smell of the grass. Uh, you know, I, I was a, just an okay hitter, so a foul ball, I fouled off a lot of balls. But the smell of the wood bat after a foul ball is like burning wood, um, you know. And so you'll see that sometimes when a guy will foul a ball off and they'll smell their bat because they want to smell the burning wood. It's a weird <laughs> thing, but it's true. Uh, but those are just, you know, the smell of pine tar. You know, I used to chew my glove, like the leather, just because I had ADD with the best of them. So I would chew the leather on my glove and just the taste of that. You know, there's some things that you just, 
you watch and you kind of see things happen. And when I see a guy smell his bat and I go, yeah, I know what you're doing right there. <laughs> you know, it's just fun to be able to uh, see certain things like that. But the, the vividness of, of some of those things are, are ingrained in my brain and will never go away. Well, very cool. Well, well, Coach Rod, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. This kind of scratches the baseball itch a little bit uh, for me. Hopefully uh, you as well remembering some of those, and I think it will for others. Really appreciate it. Oh, man, it. things were popping up in my head there because I haven't thought about it in a long time. So thank you for this opportunity. Listen, well, well thank you. When it's done, you have to write a book or something uh, about, about it <laughs> It'll all. It'll be boring so. considering what a lot of other people have done, but it's always fun. <laughs> it's good. Good. Well, Coach Rod, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. You bet, Derek. A special thank you to Derek Smith and head coach Steve Rodriguez of Baylor Baseball. We can't thank you enough for joining the Sikkim podcast today and sharing all of those wonderful stories. It was a real treat. Really good. If you if you uh, need that itch scratched uh, for some baseball, this was a good way to do that, listening to Derek and uh, Coach Rod with those stories. We do appreciate you being with us. want to make sure you subscribe to the Sikkim podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Catch us every week for a new Sikkim podcast and share on social media. And Brooke and I will be back next week with another edition of the Sikkim podcast. <laughs> You've been listening to the Sikkim Podcast, presented by your friend in the car business, Alan Samuels Dodge Chrysler Jeep Ram Fiat in Waco, online at alansamuelsdcj.com. The Sikkim Podcast has been a production of Baylor Athletics.